So for the next few weeks, what are you thinking for topics? You got any ideas? I don't know. I mean, a big one we haven't hit yet is the Fermi Paradox. My vote is for the robot uprising. Conspiracy Paradox. For the last time, we're not doing that. Fermi Paradox, though, that actually sounds pretty good. I think we need to do a big guess for that one, though. It's a big topic. Uh, completely agreed. You know who would be perfect? Tony Josh Danza. Pa- no. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one, though. I mean, he is the boss. <laughs> no, I'm Josh Clark from Stuff You Should Know. I don't know if you heard it recently. He did a 10-part series called The End of the World. Absolutely. Uh, He explored the existential risks to mankind. He he actually did an entire episode on the Fermi Paradox. I'm intrigued. Tell me more of these existential risks. If mankind goes away in the next... Never mind. Why am I telling you? But these are your your aspirations and dreams. You don't need to be talking about it. Anyway, getting Josh would be awesome, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he's probably too busy for us. (laughs) <laughs> Plus, I doubt you'd want to slum it and join this ham and egg operation. Never know until you try. They say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? This hysteria. You can't handle the truth. Brain is gone. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's a lie. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome in Hysteria Nation to the podcast that's never proven the existence of aliens. But how else would you explain Giorgio Sukulos's hair? This is Hysteria 51. Is it coincidence? I think not. Broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago, we're your hosts and captains on this interstellar exploration. I'm John Goforth, and this is Brent Hand. John, tonight we get to the heart of the matter. Where the heck are the aliens? Normally we'd have a guess for it, but this week... Hold on, guys. I brought you a guest. That other voice you're hearing is the third host of this show, an angry robot bent on world domination. He is the one and only Conspiracy Bot. You know, I built Conspiracy Bot in my lab to help produce and edit the show. Instead, he, he's pretty much just a drunk. See, Bot, what in the world is in that box? You mentioned that guy from Stuff You Should Know. I went and got him. Wait, you, you did what? Josh, Josh, is that you? Hey, guys. Sorry, I'm a little groggy. The last thing I remember, I was having this fascinating conversation with this robot about um, killing off all humans. We were sharing this basket of of buffalo chicken tenders, and now I'm here. There it is. He's the one who bought the chicken tenders. There's the problem. Never take any food from that guy. And since you're here, though, Uh number one, you've learned your lesson. Uh, You (laughs) mind joining us for a bit? We're talking the Fermi Paradox. Sure, that sounds great, but wait, where am I? What? Well, you you are here in the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago. Oh, and it's uh, a, okay. such a beautiful time of year to be here, too. <laughs> it is. A free trip to Chicago, that's that's all right. I can deal with that. <laughs> all right. For the, those of you who live under a rock and, and aren't sure who Josh is, he, along with Chuck Bryant, hosts the largest podcast in the known universe, Stuff You Should Know. Now, known universe is an important thing that you put in there considering this week's episode. That, that's, it's very 
very true. Yeah. The, the the unknown, the portion of the universe whose light has not reached us yet yeah. could have a bigger podcast. They're not even in the top 50% when you get down to brass tacks. <laughs> but, you know. If I'm not mistaken, Josh, uh, your little your little show over there uh, just surpassed uh, over well over a thousand episodes and a mm-hmm. billion downloads. Yeah, we're, we're coming up on... Close to 1,200, I would guess, by now. Wow. And um, as far as we know, we're the first podcast to ever cross a billion downloads. We were the first one on uh, Apple Podcasts to hit 500 million. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've been at it for for longer than almost every other podcast out there. So we've got a lot of years under our belt. But we're we're pretty proud of those numbers. Do we call you Grandpa, Pop-Up, Pop-Pop? Pop-Pop is, yeah, that's what I prefer. (laughs) Just because you call it that tells me that you're not ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, we're huge fans of the show, uh, as is most of the known podcast community. But uh, I think maybe even more relevant to our conversation today, a show that you put together more recently that Which we've I'm been running. Our, our, our listeners are probably familiar with. Familiar with running the, the promos, for. yeah. The End of the World with Josh Clark. Amazing, amazing show. It was a 10-part series. I mean, you explore the Fermi paradox, Fermi paradox. I always say Fermi, and I know it's Fermi. But really, the whole the premise of the show is the kind of the existential risks to humanity. It focuses, like you said, on existential risks, which are um, catastrophes, disasters, threats that are so so big, so huge, so um, so sweeping in, in scope that they are capable of actually bringing about the extinction of of. The human race. Heck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of thing he was saying when we were having our conversation over the buffalo chicken tenders. Those delicious, delicious tenders. (laughs) They were pretty good. Um, So we're not used to these kind of of risks, right? Like things like um, catastrophic climate change or um, even all-out total nuclear war. Um, These would be really, really bad for humanity. But a lot of people argued that we would adapt, that there would be enough people left over to to survive and rebuild, and that eventually, thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of years down the road, we would get back to about the point where we had left off. So existential risks are different than that. They don't allow us to rebuild. There's no do-overs. There's no learning from trial and error. If one of them happens to us once— that's it for humanity. And there's a lot of risks coming down the pike right now in the form of some of the technology we're working on, like AI, some biotech experiments, nanotechnology, possibly geoengineering, and some other stuff we haven't even thought of that we need to start planning for now or else we may accidentally wipe ourselves out with one of these these new technologies. Now, this is going to sound like a horribly morbid question, but what's your favorite? <laughs> like, if you had to pick a favorite, uh, yeah. if that's a way to put it, like, what is what was the one that you covered that you're like, well, this is crazy? I love all of them. I'm, I am I just think they're all just so fascinating. And then, I wish you would have said, I love all of them. <laughs> they're, they're all kind of my children, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say the one that gets me the most are the physics experiments. The idea of, you know, turning on a particle collider some year down the road where, you know, we've just reached these incredible um, speeds and energies in in whatever particle colliders we build 50 or 100 years from now. And just flipping the switch and then that's it. 
lights out. The universe yeah. is just over. We accidentally not just wipe out humanity, but we accidentally erase the universe through, you know, some form or fashion and some some exotic particle we've created or some accidental um, slip of physics uh, because we don't fully understand it yet. That's just fascinating to me. But again, I, I love all of them. And I, I think it comes through in the series that I was really interested in every single one of them because I really go in depth for each one. And the level of research, uh, you it must have taken you a long, long time. Much much different from this operation where we likely <laughs> likely don't go past the first page of Google. Unless you're... <laughs> no, that's not true because my wife is like, do you have to buy a book every week? I'm like, yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> and she's like, well, we have the... If you die, if we die, we're just on vacation and someone comes in and sees our library, they're going to be like, what the hell was wrong with these people? It's all serial killers and like into the world and AI and ghosts. It's like, yeah. uh-oh, uh-oh. But yeah, that makes you interesting, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, that's that's one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Josh, you actually kind of put the ball on the tee. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the particle accelerators. There's one not too far from us here in Chicago mm-hmm. called the Fermi Accelerator. Yeah. And, and, and you said it right. Fermi, I say Fermi all the time. Fermi yeah, Lab. It's Fermi Lab. Fermi Lab. I think at this point, Enrico Fermi doesn't care how you say his last name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's fair. It's fair. Uh, and and the reason that puts the ball on the tee, that transitions us into the topic today, the Fermi Paradox. Now, guys, this is going to be a, a roundtable for us to talk through all the different ins and outs of the Fermi Paradox, the possibilities, etc. But before we do that, let's just set the table for everyone. Uh, if you're not familiar, folks aren't familiar with it, uh, and and a little bit of background behind yeah. it. Yeah, we got this gorgeous cat named Enrico Fermi. He was a Nobel Prize winner who built the first nuclear reactor, and he was having lunch with his friends at a little place called Los Alamos. Now you know that, fair listener, from all, all of our Bob Lazar episodes, or a- almost every other episode. Yeah, Los Alamos true. is always involved. So, according to eyewitnesses, they were chatting about a cartoon in the New Yorker showing cheerful aliens emerging from a flying saucer carrying trash cans stolen from the streets of New York. And Fer- Fermi asks, "Where is everybody?" And 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 everyone realized he was obviously referring to the fact that we haven't seen any alien spaceships, or at least proven that we have. And the conversation turned to the feasibility of interstellar travel. The challenge with this whole conversation was that it's all somewhat third hand. Uh, Fermi never printed anything about this, wrote anything about this. It actually comes from other people who were at the lunch. He didn't have too much of a chance to. The lunch happened in 1950. He died in 1954. Uh, a guy by the name of Herbert York, who was there, seemed to have the clearest memory, saying, quote, he went, he on, went on to conclude. That's how I like it. Think he talks. That, so that's a great that Herbert York. <laughs> he went on to conclude. No, he went on to conclude <laughs> that the reason that he hadn't or we haven't been visited might be interstellar flight is impossible. Big boo on that. Or if it is possible, always judged to be not worth the effort or technical civilizations don't last long enough for it to happen, which are all things that we've kind of touched on on this show. Absolutely. And, and we'll get to that. We'll get to the possibilities of why or why not. But first, let's set up why that when we look up into the stars, we don't see an intergalactic smorgasbord of ships and life and just everything that would be involved in Star Trek, let's well, say. Well, I, I can tell you right now, we've already had experts, they said, on our show that told us that's because the firmament that covers the dome of the flat Earth blocks all that out. Oh, <laughs> oh well, episode over. Yeah, Josh, you, you can leave. 
Thanks for thanks for dropping by. <laughs> so uh, before we before we get into the why, let's cover some numbers that gives this gives this thing relevance. Gives this thing you need to understand the scale to understand why this is such a and paradox. an important thing I think to to put on that is you can't understand the scale. No, you can't. Yeah, I you mean, can't. just wrapping your arms around this, the known universe. And again, we say known for two reasons. One, light since the Big Bang has only had so much time to travel to us. Any light that hasn't made it here in that amount of time, that's the unknown universe. Two, various theories on this. Some people believe that the universe is ever expanding. That said, the known universe is 90 billion light years. By comparison, uh, the distance to the closest star to us is 4.367 light years. So to reach Alpha Centauri... If you used a spacecraft like one that we have available to us today. With speeds available right, to us today. It would take about 78,000 years to get to the closest star. That's just such a defeating number when you think about <laughs> it. You know? It's not even like, well, we'll get there Well, we'll pack a lunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In other words, the known universe, it, that's, it's just too big. Too big to fathom. Right. Like it. Like let's... this is a point that my wife and I we always talk about. I'll, I'll tell her about the stuff that we're talking about on the show, and she just like goes glassy. She's like, I don't get it. I don't like talking about it. I'm like, why? She's like, I just don't understand. Gra-. She always says this that she's staring at me from the production booth. I don't understand space. I don't get space. And I'm like, well, it's you know, it's just space. She's like, yeah, but the numbers are too big, so I'd rather not talk about it. You know, and I get that. I think that's a lot of people when you just don't understand something because it's such a grasp, you just block it out. But luckily, we had people like the the scientists that we've had. They go, no, I want to actually figure it out. Well, the thing about space though is, even if you do grasp the numbers, it doesn't really help. It just makes you feel even smaller and and less significant and even more confused. Really, it's like the you are here picture when it's just the, the milky way you know it's right. just got like, well, you know, have you ever felt more insignificant you know i know john has but i don't know if you have or not so <laughs> uh, but you, you guys bring up a good point i mean if you think about it in the known universe there's a hundred at least a hundred billion galaxies each of which has at least a hundred billion stars if not many more yeah they so, think there's actually probably a lot more than that we just don't know for sure right i mean because a lot of this is just computational guessing so for the purposes of this conversation let's keep it local let's just go down to our our little neck of the woods our galaxy the milky way i prefer snickers yeah that's gross that's no, not, not a fan actually i don't like milky ways i'm i, I'm I do not, like milky ways i don't like snickers. i like them both why choose life's too short life's too insignificant to have to choose between milky way and snickers there you go touche touche i've got a snickers over here for you josh if you are hungry again (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much but yeah he'll he'll save it for the ride home (laughs) fool fool me twice uh so just in the milky way we have at least 400 billion stars scientists think that stars like our sun are for various reasons that it would take an episode to go through are the most likely to support life in, in our respective solar system. Uh, so there are about 20 billion of those give or take in the Milky way. Estimates are that about 20% of those or about 4 billion have potentially habitable zones for carbon based life planets in the respective Goldilocks. Zone. Now that's because as we look at it, we only know of life being carbon based. That does not mean mm-hmm. that life is only carbon based. Absolutely. That's a great uh, point. That is what we've seen. And it's a lot easier to grasp things in your own view. 
there could be energy and and silicone based and just i mean crazy amounts of life that we haven't even thought of methane based octopus floating around on jupiter that's right that's <laughs> right uh all right so if if only 0.5% of those planets that are in that Goldilocks zone in the Milky Way actually developed life, there would be 20 million planets with life in the Milky Way alone. But look at the, the problem with that that I see, not a problem, is what we're talking about. Look how big the Milky Way is. You got 20 million planets dispersed through it. You're so far away. Right, right. Another way to talk about uh, that's the Milky Way. Another way to talk about scale that's just like one sentence. When you think about the known universe, think about every grain of sand on the entire, on every beach in the entire world. There are at least 10,000 stars out there for every grain of sand. Whoa. That is staggering. That, I mean, now try to wrap your mind around that number. No, thanks. I'm good. (laughs) Um, So with with the high probability that some of these stars have Earth-like planets, and if the Earth is typical, some may have developed intelligent life. Some the, of the, the whole the Earth is typical is a whole other conversation as well. Right, the whole rare Earth thing, right. Yeah. But some of these civilizations, at some point, because of the universe is so old, may have developed interstellar travel like we are working on now. So even at the slow pace of currently envisioned interstellar travel, like how long it would take, the Milky Way galaxy could completely be traversed in like just a few million years. Mm-hmm. So if you follow that whole line of reasoning, the Earth should have already been visited by aliens, period, full stop. So to echo Enrique Fermi's point, where is everybody? (laughs) I mean, we're going to get into those why, but there's a lot of, of possibilities as to why they haven't or have they because if you listen to a lot of our episodes previously they're here in spades you know every other day just probing and cruising probing and crashing every once in a while crashing yeah yeah. a lot lot of people are like what what do you mean where the aliens yeah exactly. open your eyes yeah we we just we just angered a lot of people i've i've answered this for you i was on geraldo and i did so yeah yeah all right so john i think you set the table pretty well we're gonna go to break real quick when we come back we're gonna get into the potential explanations of where other intergalactic brethren are at out there in the cosmos coming up on hysteria 51 Hola, David. Me amo Brent. Bonjour, uh, Brent. Je m'appelle David. You didn't do Spanish. I thought if we were going to do this together, we'd do the same language. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's uh, that's on brand for us. I, that, I, I just thought romance languages was yeah. the key. Everything I say is romantic, and that is thanks to Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you guys, we, we've been touting these things forever. We love Rosetta Stone, and we actually are users... David, you've really been using it even for longer than I. What's your experience been like? Oh, it's been great. The thing is, uh, you really get to learn how to speak and think in that language with it. So it's very high on pronunciation, too. So <laughs> you can, you know, learn how to speak. And, you know, our show is all about proper pronunciation. <laughs> in that pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. But it's it, they designed it for long-term retention, you know. It, and yeah. Uh, if you don't get the pronunciation right, you, you say it until you do. And then, you know, that, that just seeps into your head. Well, and that's why, you know, this has been trusted by experts for 30 years and 
There's over 25 different languages that you can learn and people, millions and millions of users use it because like you said, it does seep in and you're using it with, you know, you get speech recognition and mm-hmm. it, it hears you. You get to use like the built-in true accent features that gives you this pronunciation, which is super convenient and you can do it at your own time. And I don't know if you can know this, but I'm all about value and you get a one-time purchase, 25 languages. If I learned all 25 languages, I'd be so confused. Or really cool. <laughs> I have to go in and out. But you'd be real marketable. But literally, though, this is something that we use, and we have both of us have given the seal of approval because we want to do this long term, and uh, it's something that uh, it works, you know. And we don't yeah. we don't do long term um, stuff like this, and this is this is the one that we've chosen, and we love it. So, all you guys got to do don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now, as we've told you a thousand times, and it's always now, right now. Get now. started. For Larry, limited time, his Air 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. How much? 50%. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your unnatural life. Wow. Redeem, redeem, redeem. How do they do it? Rashate, you're oh. 50% off. <laughs> Rashate. <laughs> redeem it. 50% off rosettastone.com slash today. Do it today. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when Brent and I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, man, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Brent is trying to plan right now and says that it works like a charm from Chicago to Nashville as he makes his big old move. Mint Mobile is working for him. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. So ditch the overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash hysteria. That's mintmobile, M-I-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-E dot com slash hysteria, H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hysteria. $45 upfront payment required. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. are back and uh i went and picked up the top of my head as it had popped off earlier trying to go through those numbers but guys we wish we (laughs) very funny we we talked about the basic paradox is this the reason it's called a paradox is at the scale of the size of the universe and at the scale of the size of our galaxy there should be life elsewhere we have not encountered life elsewhere that's, at least scientifically, like we following the scientific me- method, provable, repeatable, et cetera. The government's 
<laughs> tells us yeah, right. <laughs> that, yeah, we got to say that because so many people disagree with that, you know? So the, the accepted answer is that we have not. And science, and, and, and I mean, we're following the scientific train here. Science has also concluded that we have not yet because it's not, it doesn't follow the scientific yeah. method. It, mm-hmm. It's not provable. It's not repeatable. Right. And also, I mean, like even, even uh, acquiescing to the, to the arguments that we have, um, been visited by other people before. I think what what the the basis of the Fermi paradox is that that the universe is so big and so old, and the 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 Milky Way at least should be so teeming with life because of all the habitable planets and because of all the time that life has had to evolve. That no government or um uh, or anyone else could possibly keep it secret. I it can. should just be right. like we know that there's alien life out there. Like we know there's a moon. There's just no way to to cover it up. And that's where the paradox really kicks in. There's no no possibility of a cover up. It should be so plainly evident. And the fact that it's not is what makes the whole thing so weird. You couldn't walk into the Amazon forest and someone walk up and say, there are no animals around you at all. Right. right. (laughs) Disregard the trees. I love how they they get around that in most, you know, like sci-fi movies and stuff. They go, they found this backwater planet. And that just explains it all. Like, it's in the middle of nowhere. We're just not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. no one's around us. And it's just, you can just explain it away with like that little one line. Well, it's fun. I guess we are kind of backwater for sure. Comparatively to the center of the galaxy. Yeah, we're on a spiral arm of a spiral galaxy in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we are further away from other stars than some stars are to each other. But again, that doesn't that doesn't answer the question of the Fermi paradox. So let's tick through some potential answers and just and just give our thoughts on them and, yeah. and, and give some background some, on them. Some possibilities. Let's yeah. start with one here. Life's difficult to start and to evolve to an intelligent and technological advanced stage. We're the only one in the galaxy that has ever done that. Doesn't mean we're alone, but distance and time change. We're the only one here, like close by. Right. Like, meaning it, it's difficult to start. So it, we're not saying it hasn't happened elsewhere, but because it's it so happened difficult, elsewhere, way out there. Right. And right. that doesn't mean that we're the only one, but we might be. Uh, a small batch, and you know, with the amount of galaxies we talked about, maybe we're the only one in this galaxy. Yeah, yeah. But you still run into the same issue as before. I mean, if this was, say, an ancient galaxy or an ancient civilization, that's you know, we we presume that since we're just now starting to kind of wake up and open our eyes and look around, that we would be relatively young. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we've been around for a very short time compared to the age of the universe. So if life has been able to evolve for the last 10 or 12 billion years, the idea that we're, we're, you know, the first ones to, to kind of wake up or that the other ones out there are about the same age as us seems really kind of unlikely. So if they're far, far older, you still run into the same issue. Why haven't they spread out and colonized the rest of the galaxy within, say, 50 million years? We should still know that they're out there, even if they're out there and far away. It goes in along the line of, like, if really we are the first or in the group of the first, what is that bind that took 13 billion years? Like, there's got to be a, oh, this needs to happen for life, and we just haven't found that yet. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. there had to be, it had to be an explainable thing. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And that, let's, you know, we mentioned it earlier. Let's talk about that right now, then. That's the, uh, there's one hypothesis out there called the rare earth hypothesis. Basically, mm-hmm. we look at these kind of macro effects like, oh, are you far enough away from your star to have a decent temperature? 
and and a few other things. And we're like, so there should be so much life. But there's also a combination of a myriad of other things that make some believe that the special uh, mix of of everything that we have here on Earth makes us the rare Earth. When you really kind of start looking at the rare Earth hypothesis, you you it becomes clear it is so much more than just being in the a star's Goldilocks zone is is a requirement mm-hmm. for life, or not even necessarily a requirement for life, but that the the advantages that life on Earth had because of the the unique peculiarities of Earth, like plate tectonics, or the fact that there's a giant a gas giant that's basically deflecting all of the flotsam and jetsam from space. It's a big vacuum space. saving us, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the uh, uh, the fact that our moon is way larger relative to the size of our planet than most other moons, which means that we have tides that may have acted as an early laboratory for life to uh, to to form there's just like that's just a, a a few off the top of my head they, they, uh, Donald Brownlee and one of his um his uh, co-authors wrote a book an entire book basically saying like here are all the reasons why earth is totally weird when it comes to sustaining life and it may be that earth is the only place in the galaxy and possibly the universe that has this mind-boggling number of factors that all happen to come together to create um, the conditions for life to arise. Like maybe all of the ingredients for life are all over the universe, but that doesn't mean that they're going to happen upon one planet where they can um, uh, have a, a nice laboratory to come together and, and grow. That's a, that's a really good point. Because if you think about it, we talk about the 10 to the whatever power number of planets out there that should be able to support life based on those those macro factors we talked about before. But when you when you start taking into account all of the smaller factors, which aren't small, I don't mean that. I, th- I think I call them smaller factors in the sense that we have such a limited view of our galaxy and universe. We can't tell if this planet that X that we just discovered so many trillion light years away even has a moon or not. You know, right. we're using other we're using other ways of determining the fact that it's even there. We can't see it. So when you take all of those in plate tectonics, I mean, we're the only I, I believe I could be wrong about this, but I, th- I believe we're the only planet in our solar system that actually has moving plates. An active volcano. Uh, as far as we know. Yeah, yeah. As far as we know. Yeah. And plate that are, most of them are, are dead as far as that goes. And uh, and, you know, you mentioned your moon. I mean, uh, our, our your moon, your moon, your moon and my moon. <laughs> it's my Thursday. Congrats <laughs> on that to again. the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, it's only a paper moon. Uh, no, uh, our <laughs> <Great> moon. <movie. laughs> yes. <laughs> the. Um, our moon and the fact that it's also um, it's also uh, I forget the term it's fixed, which brings not only the tides that you mentioned, but a tremendous amount of stability. So mm-hmm. we don't like wobble and, and 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 all of those things, I'm sure, are limiting to life if you don't have them. The rare earth hypothesis takes all of those facts. If, 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 if I was a much smarter person and, and we're able to come up with, you know, huge math, mathematic algorithms, I'll handle this. <laughs> you, would, you would think that, that, uh, that as all for the 10 to the, whatever power 
uh, number of civil- civilizations that should exist, you'd probably also think that there's a 10 to the whatever power probability that they could on to the, off those powers once you really yes. break down how weird things are. Mm-hmm. We, let's move on, though, because we can keep on that forever. Uh, the, yeah. Another one is, and this is an important one that is very feasible when you look at the climate of the world today, advanced civilizations destroy themselves on relatively short time scales. You get to the point where they say, like, we are within a hundred years will be a level one civilization. Well, a lot of people say we're never going to get to that level one civilization because we've destroyed our atmosphere. We've destroyed climate or we will destroy ourselves. Like you talked about with an all out nuclear war or something along those lines. Yeah. This to me is the key. This is, I think this is the answer to the Fermi paradox. And and to put it in another term, there's a, an economist named Robin Hanson who basically kind of reformulated the, the Fermi paradox to, to basically use it as a, a, um, a guidepost, a signal for the future of humanity. And he called it the great filter. And basically the great filter is either in our past, meaning we're very, very rare um, and that life is not ubiquitous and, and it's actually very special and, and um, unusual that we're here and in existence. Or the great filter, um, whatever keeps life from spreading out into the universe so that we know there is other life out there um, is in our future that there's something that happens before an intelligent civilization manages to spread off of its home planet. And if that's the case, if there is a filter in that that keeps other life or has kept other life thus far from spreading out into the galaxy and the universe, we really want to pay attention to this because there aren't too many steps between where we are now and the point where we will ostensibly leave Earth and spread out. Mm-hmm. So if there's some filter that has wiped out all other life before it could leave its planet, um, that means that we're going to face the same thing and we need to figure out what that is. And kind of the basis of the the series that I, I made is that it's this technology coming down the pike that we're, we're not, we're taking way too casually and that it'll be one of those things that wipes us out. And, and that's the more pessimistic view um you could say that (laughs) i suppose i would say realistic but yeah keep going (laughs) the optimistic view of the great filter is it certainly does exist and it's past us we are just we are just one of the few that made it through or 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 the only that made it through if we Mm -hmm. uh if everything else being equal they just haven't it's not that they haven't made it here it's just that we are the only one sitting here it's so funny how these can tick off so many things. Like you just said, we are the few or the only one. That's why we haven't found anyone. We're the only one or mm-hmm. we're so few. It, it, every one of these you can make such a solid case for on either direction. There's a third option on the great filter. I mean, or at least that I would put under the the greater category of the great filter. That is the great filter could actually just be the jump from simple prokaryote cell life to complex eukaryote cell. So mm-hmm. it's not that we aren't alone. It's not that there isn't that the universe isn't, in fact, teeming with life. It's that we are the great filter was we were able to make the jump and the rest of them can't. The higher form of life. Right. Right. There's a number of steps, actually, that, that have been identified in our evolutionary past. And, it, it, you know, there's the, the jump from um, prokaryote to eukaryote. There's the initial one where, you know, f- for some weird reason, dead molecules came together and formed living self-replicating molecules. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the Cambrian explosion is pointed to as a very unlikely event in the history mm-hmm. of life on Earth where we went from basically simple aquatic 
uh, bacteria to multicellular body plans like we see on Earth today, almost overnight, um, uh, geologically speaking. And then you have the development of actual intelligent life, which is us, which as far as we know, we're the only intelligent life in the universe. And there's like five, six, seven steps. And each one of them could have been the great filter in our past, which is an optimistic view. I agree with you. But there's no guarantee, and Robin Hansen points this out, there's no guarantee that the great filter is not in our past and in our future, too. Right. Oh, yeah. There could be multiple great filters. And maybe each one of those is a filter that we've made it through, but we've got this next one coming up before we spread out from our planet. So not only is it rare that we that we jump from prokaryote to eukaryote, mm-hmm. uh, it's also our own technology is going to kill us. <laughs> it's, it's rare that we drug ourselves out of the water, so to speak. It's rare that, that all these things, it's rare that our planet in and of itself has, has survived as long as it is. Everything, everything leads to everything. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's not necessarily that, um, you know, our, you know, it's going to be nuclear war, it's going to be AI. And then that, that's the filter, the, the great filter being in our future. The idea, the basis of it is that, 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 intelligent life gets itself into this precarious position that we're starting to enter now where it's to kind of paraphrase Carl Sagan grown powerful before it's grown wise, meaning that it's developing technology that is way, way more powerful than anything it had before capable of wiping itself out with, but socially and culturally it has not developed along the lines enough to, to use it in a very wise manner, very much like how we created nuclear energy. And the first thing we did with it was turn it into weapons and start pointing at each other. Yeah. That's a great example of growing powerful before we've grown wise. And now we're starting to develop technology that's even more powerful. It's capable of even more destruction than nuclear technology. And we haven't grown any wiser than we were back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, and that is the idea is that's the great filter, that uh, that an intelligent civilization inevitably gets itself in that situation and none have survived to this point. And now we, throughout the universe, are the ones that are about to go through the great filter. And the question remains whether we'll make it through or not. It's possible we can, but the chances are it, 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 it would be very unusual if we actually do. I was about to make the analogy it's like letting babies play with knives, but it's, it's mm-hmm. actually not. It's like the baby uh, uh, carving out a shiv in their crib <laughs> and then allowing them, and then, and then they start playing with it because they made it themselves. Right. One other thing you mentioned in there, you mentioned taking these dead cells and some sort of, some sort of um, um, fo- power or some sort of force that drives them together in a certain form that creates live cells, b- basically the beginning of life. Mm-hmm. It's something you touched on in your series. I remember you men- when I listened, I remember you mentioning how that actually goes against the laws of the universe, meaning yeah. the laws of the universe are, are, tend towards chaos. Right, yeah. It, it makes zero sense that that molecules that are separate and independent and distinct would come together to form increasingly complex oh, forms. N- ho- hold on, hold on. I know a famous chaotician who said, life finds a way. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And that is yeah. a good point. I mean, like, that's proven by the fact that life actually exists. Because if you go back far enough into our evolutionary history, we reach a point where we're like, okay, this makes zero sense. Like, why would this have happened? This doesn't make any sense. And it it, it is um, such a, a unique uh, view that there is 
recently come, I, I don't remember who came up with this idea, but there's this idea that there is an organizing principle of life in exactly the same way that, you know, we can predict what will happen when something encounters gravity or electromagnetism, that when these dead molecules come together under the right conditions, some organizing principle will take over and actually guide life. Yeah, I know Stephen Hawking talked about the organizing principles a lot, not just in that and everything in, in mm-hmm. as far as time travel and things right. like that. Right. He, he always talked about there just seems to be this unseeable force something that guides things that this is the way it's going to be. And that's that sounds very metaphysical too, right? It sounds like, right. well, you're talking about God. Not necessarily. There's there's another um, uh, a school of thought that I came across called digital physics. And it basically says that there is at bottom some very simple, elegant code to the universe, and that that ultimately is what drives everything in in the universe. It's, it's, you could think of it as kind of like the um, uh, quantum gravity, like marrying the three um, the three uh, fundamental forces with gravity, uh, like what string theory seeks to do, kind of. But yeah. this is this says this is even simpler than that. It's just some very simple bit of code, which says that if you put this this quark. With um, with this quark, it's going to form this. If they're in the neighborhood of one another, they're going to come together. And then when this forms, if it's in the neighborhood of this subatomic, uh, subatomic um, molecule, it's going to come together with this thing. It's going to form this. And so you just keep having this increasingly complicated, complex process creating these large-scale things like us or planets or stars. And that if we understood this code that underlies the whole thing, we could predict everything and all of it would make sense. And that that is part of that is this this guiding principle of organizing molecules and matter into life. It's just a byproduct of it or an outgrowth of it. Well, kind of going with that, it was uh, physicist James Gates. He's kind of famous. He was on with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the one who was studying the, you know, the fabric of space and found quote unquote computer code in it and a lot yeah. of people said like you said it was well that's proof of god and they're like well, not really it might just be proof that there is this code that binds in the universe mm-hmm. and we are finding it ourselves as we progress doing ma- you know uh, computer simulations and math and things like that because we're progressing faster in a way than what we can even grasp ourselves. The, and the basis, I mean, you said it, the guy who was looking at the fabric of the universe, that's kind of the basis of it is that the, if you zoom in far enough into the actual fabric of the universe, what you're going to find are little individual discrete bits mm-hmm. and they carry information. And then that's that. When you get this bit next to this bit, it's going to form another another piece of information, discrete piece of information that's a slightly more complicated and then so on and so forth and so forth. And then that's how you end up with molecules and then life and planets and all of that stuff. It's actually written in Cobra. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) No, it's Python, actually. I checked it. (laughs) Uh, All right. All right. So It's C++. That's why it's running so bad. It's it's basic. Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. So we could spend forever on that. Let's get to the next. Let's get the next possibility. Now let's let's talk about some possibilities of life does exist elsewhere. We just haven't seen it yet. First, I'd say on that list is uh, the zoo theory. That's been popular in the passed around links as of late. You know that we we're a zoo. We're a cosmic zoo. People come by to look at us, and the reason we don't see them is whoever is controlling said universe has just deemed us 
uh, an oddity. Well, if they are that far advanced, if they're you know a level on the Kardashev scale, if they're level two, a level three civilization, they could easily stay out of our sight. Not mine. I'm a level seven. Remember? <laughs> <You're right. laughs> wow. Uh, he has he has delusions of grandeur. Oh, okay. The, so the the zoo theory. I mean, I mean, you can take it in a few different directions. Josh, uh, any any initial thoughts on it? Yeah, so the zoo theory, just to give a little background, there's a, a Ohio State um, astronomer named John Ball who, back in 1973, basically came up with this. And it, 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 I mean, it makes sense. It's very appealing because it, it, it reassures us that, yes, there is very, there's life out there and that it's kind of aspirational, too, because these guys are so advanced, they're so um, intelligent that they don't even care about us. Or yeah. they do care about us and they're keeping us in some sort of preserved state or they're kind of keeping an eye on us and waiting for us to reach some level of evolution to where all of the mysteries of the universe are going to be revealed to us because they're going to contact us and we're going to have basically like a, a galactic or universal coming out party, you know, like it's a quinceanera for Star humanity. Star Trek, we need to reach the prime directive you know, yeah. warp sure. before they can talk to us. You know, right. it's, it's like the whole ants. We're it not going to really going to go out of our way to speak to ants until right. they do something that that gets our attention that goes, oh, they deserve us to be speaking to them. And, yeah. and a lot of people say that's why we should be messaging out into the universe, because, you know, how we're not we're just listening right now. We're not trying to get their attention, really. Well, we sent um, a mixtape and a couple nudes a few decades ago. <laughs> we did. We did. <laughs> it was a shot in the dark, though. Literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, bouncing off of the zoo theory, there's another possibility that um, they've heard us. Whatever radio signals we've been at least shooting out, you know, TV radio signals mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, decades now. And they're on the way. It just, just takes a long time, and that that could be a that could be part of the great filter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that that ticks off both of those. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's a scary one. There's these things called berserker probes that are kind of this hypothetical idea that if you um, if you had advanced and and wanted the matter and energy in the universe to, for your own civilization, and you were aware that there were other civilizations out there um, that were probably going to come later, the easiest thing for you to do would just be to create some probes that you just seeded the universe with to sit dormant, say on like the dark side of the moon, that would come alive when a a a, a, a civilization reach some certain level of evolution or technological sophistication. Say like once our electromagnetic signature from, you know, broadcasting triggered it. And then they come alive and then they come and destroy that civilization so that it can't be competition in the future for the original parent civilization. A competition for resources, competition, eventually grow large enough to be able to fight them, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Just let's just insert horror. And yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Let's take that thought process of they are that advanced down a different path. They are so advanced that they we that we've talked about this before on this show. There's certainly a firm belief that if once a civilization gets to level three and beyond, that it might just start uploading its entire consciousness to computers. We or might whatever not even it, recognize it, it as life anymore and, and, in, and, a, in a way. And, and, but if it does upload itself to what its version of a computer is. Then we get to the the estivation hypothesis, and what that is. And Josh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But my I looked my, up the Estevez hypothesis. <laughs> I was totally off of that. 
<laughs> a super intelligent race of Emilio. <laughs> <laughs> but you saw some great movies along the that's way. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Young Guns 2 is my favorite. We're all going to die one. from a flying V, you know, so that's the way it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that one of the kids from that movie just got arrested for, like, stealing stuff so he could go buy drugs or something? Like, Well, I it, mean, it, it, how long is your... Mighty Ducks money gonna last. Well, I mean, there was free, baby. Weren't there seventeen sequels? I don't know. There, there was a few. You're yeah. Right. Anyway, all right. So, so back to <laughs> we digress. Back, we di- <laughs> the estivation hypothesis is essentially this: when once you build a computer large enough to hold the data that is your entire civilization's consciousness, that computer, all computers emanate heat to one extent or another, and when it gets large enough and enough heat. Uh, is being shot out there that eventually becomes a bad thing whether it's a bad thing because you can't it gets too hot and you can't cool it down even in the depths of space or you're a lot more uh seeable to yeah. other civilizations so the uh the the thought process is that we we know that the universe is entropic or at least we think it is so that it the universe will eventually cool and cool and cool and cool so that they are essentially uh going into hibernation until the day comes that the universe is cool enough that they can run their machine and, and live on their civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I butcher that well enough, uh, Josh? <laughs> no, no. I mean, uh, like you, like uh, a post-biological civilization will eventually run into a waste heat problem. Yeah. And the estivation hypothesis, estivation is what an animal does when it basically hibernates because it's hot, not because it's cold. And the estivation hypothesis is that a post-biological society would say, okay, we're going to wait until, like you said, the universe cools down, gets closer and closer to the to the heat death of the universe, so that it's way cooler, meaning that com- uh, computation is going to be way more efficient, which is, you know, for a post-biological society, that's the lifeblood, is the um, computing speed, processing speed. Um and so they will actually hibernate. They will estivate, I guess, for a million or a billion or um, several billion years. And then they'll wake up so that the, at the point where the computing will be most efficient. But in the meantime, they need to protect their claim that they've staked while they're sleeping. Thus, they, it might be a combination of both that and the berserker probes. Yeah. Right. Right, right. So, so the berserker probes would would kind of keep an eye out for any new young um, upstart civilizations that might come about while this post biological society is hibernating, and it would wipe them out. So now, that that kind of ties into the other the original berserker probe theory. The interesting thing about this is we're looking at this with the concept of. You know, technology, everything we do produces heat and things like that. We're using it with the eyes that we have. When you're talking about a type two or type three civilization Mm -hmm. that is actually, we say colonizing, and it kind of goes along with that. It doesn't mean that they might be physically colonizing. The entire concept of physical colonization might be backwards to them. We don't know what that might unlock when we can harness all of the power of our host sun, our host uh, universe things like that when you step into type two and type threes maybe that doesn't even matter anymore the heat we've come up with a way that that isn't a thing i know that that sounds made up but it's all made up because we don't know that's a really good point though that, and i think a lot of people when they're when they're making arguments about this kind of stuff that their imaginations end somewhere in human level 
And it, it, it's a really great uh, mental exercise, at least, to say, well, we're thinking from, you know, the, the human mind. We're not thinking from, you know, a post-biological type two or type three civilization's mind. Well, who knows what they'd be capable of? So, yeah, waste heat might not be an issue, but they are going to need material and resources and energy to carry out that computation. Right. And so they, they do have reason to continue to spread out and colonize further and further as they need more and more and more. And if they're harnessing the energy of a star or a galaxy, that should leave some sort of telltale sign even while they're sleeping because you would assume that they're going to keep trying to harness energy or keep mining um, material. And we should be able to to see that somehow. We just need to learn how to, what we're looking for. Well, and, and so taking that a step further... Maybe we're just the only idiots out there, out there broadcasting out. Spewing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other civilizations that have, have come to our level and beyond, they know that there are these huge predator civilizations out there. It's like mortal engines on a planetary scale. You do not, you do not send these. Civil Darwin, space Darwinism, you know. (laughs) Yeah. You do not send these signals out because they will come get you. And we just Mm -hmm. weren't. We weren't smart enough to realize that. And then I, I suppose the one that before we go to break that we should mention is that a portion of all of this is true, but they have been here. They are here. The government is just that good. They're just hiding it. They're hiding it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it started with a a, a crash that was a <laughs> weather balloon uh, way back in the 40s, and, and, and they've been in contact, and they're hiding it from us for our own good, gentlemen, is what it really an- amounts to. Tough to argue with. That's what the government does at all times, right? Everything's yeah. for our they own good. They take my money because it's for my own for good. For your own good, yeah. You know, they, they dictate what I can do for my own good. All That's right. That's how it works. They, they create uh, chemtrails for your own good. Well, you know, you can't have all straight frogs, you know? <laughs> That's what that's what Alex. That's says. what Alex Jones says. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, enough of that. When we come back, let's uh, let's head to break. When we come back, let's look at a few of the more out there theories. Yeah, these, these ones have been these, real easy to grasp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then we'll wrap up with let's take a look at Occam's Razor. What makes the most sense? Which you might or might not like. Ooh. That's after the break on Hysteria Fifty One. <laughs> We got a double JJ this week on (laughs) (laughs) other possibilities. What do you guys, what what are some other possibilities? We referenced this earlier. The the universe could be teeming with life. We were weirdly uh, rooted in, uh, in carbon based life. Mm. And that, but like, what about what if there is life on all these gas giants? I mean, we wouldn't really even know how to detect it. Or, or what if it's just kind of looking us in, in our face and we, we don't see it for what it is, you know? Like, what if life is just an emergent property of some complex system? And we think it has to be a oh, walking, yeah. talking, communicating thing. But, um, you know, the, the uh, I hate to cite it, but there's that whole Gaia hypothesis that, that the Earth in its own way is, is a, a, a system that mm-hmm. is larger than the sum of its parts. It doesn't mean that, you know— the Earth is going to sit up and talk to us and be like, "Actually, you want to tilt your telescope It's more like over a there. reef. It's more like a uh, reef. You very know, much so, right? Millions so, of of complex of minute organisms creating one larger complex one. 
Or like a hive mind, you know, like we, yeah. we look at a hive mind and we see that there's this very sophisticated, basically an artificial intelligence is what you would call it. But we don't think of it as life. We think of it as, you know, actually it's stemming from all these different lives. Well, what if that's not necessarily true? What if life has more uh, sophisticated layers than, than we are aware of? The universe is teeming with life in that sense. That actually feels very right in a weird sort of way, too, because going with the hypothesis that we aren't the smartest things out there. Like we only we only have a uh, study set to look from of one uh, mm-hmm. sample set. So right. uh, like just the idea that we don't know what we don't know uh, always appeals to me. I read something interesting recently. They're talking about different types of life and it, it all went on to the paranormal and ghost things and how some life that we don't know how to reach or some others are just shifted from us. So we catch these glances of life that we just don't realize is life. And that's what we say is paranormal or things like that. Oh, that's interesting. And, and, and it's just on this this veil of existence that is out of tune with us and that is just something that is we might be the ones that are actually out of tune right you know what i mean and, and everything like else the is- others do you ever see that movie the others with nicole kidman no yes oh yes. i'm not going to spoil it then john oh, just it's a great spoil right though. when you stop today go watch Mm-hmm. Oh, good. My my wife likes that kind of stuff. We will. Well, it's got Nicole Kidman, so she'll be fine. Um, <laughs> all right, so, guys, uh, another one. Let let's go back to an earlier hypothesis. It's not that life can't exist elsewhere, but maybe maybe we're the only one in this galaxy that it. It's so rare that in this galaxy yeah. we're pretty much the only one that it happened to. We we haven't even talked about the fact that we don't know how dangerous travel between galaxies is we know that just travel in our nearby space is incredibly dangerous right radiation and Mm -hmm. and just the effects on the the body the drying out of your eyes and the effects it has on your muscles the effects it has on everything we don't know what crazy we don't really know what extragalactic space is like. That's a good word that doesn't get used enough extragalactic and and that there could be a limiting factor there there, there could be some sort of limiting factor that, okay, within your galaxy, maybe, but outside of that, good luck. Mm-hmm. It, that's, I mean, that's entirely possible, but it has the flaw that just about every argument against um, the Fermi paradox has, or the idea that we're, we're, we aren't the only ones out there has. And that is that, like, if you're talking about potentially trillions of civilizations that have developed and some of which have survived over the years and they're still out there, that that not a single one of them, as advanced as they've gotten, has figured out how to get around whatever issue this is. Right, right, right. No, that's a good point. That, that's a, that's a big flaw because I mean that's that's a lot of chances to give it a shot, a lot of different perspectives and paradigms to approach the issue from, and that not one of them has figured it out. And also take into account that um, you know these are issues for us. We've just we we've been to the moon basically that's that's what we've done as 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 ourselves the farthest we've been is the moon we're babies when it comes to the idea of something like interstellar or inter, intergalactic travel so it's it's kind of the same thing where we're looking at these problems through the minds of an extraordinarily young intelligent civilization if and if even a civilization that has a million year head start on us or a hundred thousand year head start on us imagine what what humanity could do in a hundred thousand years mm-hmm. if we keep at trying to get off of earth 
I mean, the, the, it, you can make the same argument for any other civilization out there that has that kind of head start on us. Now give them a million years. Right. You right. know, or whatever right. they might have had. Let's go down a completely different path then. The path of we truly don't understand our own reality. Now, that could be something as simple as we, we did an episode on this before. Josh, I know you've talked about it numerous times in various places. Simulation theory. So, you know, we're, we don't understand it because we physically cannot. It's ingrained into the code that we just will not be able to figure right. out. Right. We're, we're alone because we're the only one that was programmed so far uh, by, by the junior we're, in college. Yeah, we're <laughs> sitting on a desk somewhere with a C minus and it's a C me next to it. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, anything from simulation theory to the entire uh, the entirety of existence is a hologram to I mean, this, these are more out there concepts. But the point being the overlying point being no matter which one is true or you believe in or whatever, we truly just don't understand our reality. Right. Well, and I, I always think it's funny with the whole simulation theory, not funny, an interesting way to put onto it is we talked about before is. It looking like a simulation because the the universe is broken down into these codes, that, like we talked about, that it's just so structured that it falls in line with what we would think of as uh, a, a code, a simulation, things like that. It also goes down the whole theological debate. Well, it's a simulation because that's how the deity, you know, God or whoever you have created it that way. And that's the way that they made it, and we're we're in a simulation because they they have simulated us in that way, or is it just all BS? And Josh, do you the the idea that we don't perceive our reality in the correct way being an explanation for the Fermi paradox mm-hmm. does that uh, does that hold more or less water? I, I don't know that the simulation theory necessarily says that we incorrectly perceive our reality. It, it it's basically saying like we. Like, it's reality to us. It's a simulation to whoever's simulating it. But to us, it's reality. Everything that we share this simulated universe with is as real as we are. And so it, it doesn't actually serve as an answer to the Fermi Paradox because all of the same questions and all of the same scenarios and all the same situations can all still take place in the simulated universe. container, but everything's still there. Plus, yeah, it kind of it really just kind of kicks the uh, the the idea up one more level. Like it doesn't tell us about anything outside of the simulation. Like, are there aliens outside of the simulation? Are the physics the same outside of the the the, the simulation? Um, and we even if we start to try to explore those larger questions, we're still stuck with the same questions in here. It always reminds me of an old episode of Star Trek: Next Generation where Data liked to play as Sherlock Holmes. And he uh-huh. was too, he'd, he'd solve it immediately. It wasn't fun. So he goes, well, what if we turned the simulation, get, you know, they can turn it up and make it more realistic, set it to like maximum level, which was like his level of intelligence. Mm-hmm. He goes back in and immediately uh, Moriarty realizes he's in a simulation. <laughs> Literally. So he, he realizes and he watches them like, you know, computer and hope. So he takes over the ship and they ended up tri- like tricking him by putting him into a larger simulation. He could go out and explore the, the universe on his own without realizing he's in the simulation. What happens when he figures out he's in that simulation? You know what I mean? It's just, a, it's one of those things. When you were younger, did you want anything more than to have a holodeck? Oh, right. Right. <laughs> yes. Still yeah. working on that. Still work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Brent, you actually, you, you mentioned this earlier in, in, in the conversation about simulation theory. I think 
it's worth exploring. It's an entire episode, so we will just do it for a moment. But it's worth pointing out the God question. Let's just say, uh, I, you know, Brent, Brent and I have talked about on the show, Josh, that we both actually do believe in God. But there are different types of gods you can believe in. You can believe in the magic wand god who walks around and with the magic wand and goes, poof, there's a tree. And, you know, versus versus this omnipotent entity that just breathes a breath of something to get everything rolling. And then the Big Bang takes over and then evolution takes over and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. No matter what god you believe in, if God exists, it, it, it's interesting because it exp- it could explain both sides of that coin, right? It's not an answer for the Fermi paradox. Some people argue that it is. They say that we're alone and it's because it's God's will. Right. Well, actually, actually, God could exist and just have created the universe with that breath, that organizing principle, that organizing force, and then let things go from there. That's the exact same thing as the simulation argument too, basically. Right. It doesn't answer or change anything because, okay, God created it. Now we still have all those same questions. I just right. thought it was worth worth bringing up that some people say that the God question answers the the Fermi paradox. The very the, and they're, they're taking a very limited scope on it. Well, God just only created us, and we're th- that's right. just a very very limited view of the universe uh, of a universe created by God. Even I didn't create you turds. No, no. <laughs> that, that that's that's not... seventh seven category seven talking right there. <laughs> Word. All right, guys. Before we wrap, let's get to the final one. We're rapping? Yeah. Are we battling or just... Yeah, rap battle. Yeah, Uh, okay. Snap back to reality. Uh, (laughs) Occam's razor would tell us... That's Occam. Yes, yes. Thank you for the correct (laughs) pronunciation. We're going to say fair me. We're going to say Occam. Occam's razor would tell us that we're completely alone, whether it be by intelligent design, the rarity of life developing... Or just bad timing. We're either late to the party or we're there fashionably early. Early. (laughs) (laughs) It's our party. We're throwing it later. But regardless of the reason, we are completely alone on this this little blue dot. I uh, used to be of the mind that that the universe is just so astoundingly and incomprehensibly big that there's just, it's not possible. We're the only life, uh, intelligent life. And then I started kind of researching this more and more and more, and I actually came to a different conclusion that it seems pretty likely that we actually are. As, as, as even more astounding as that idea is, it seems like the likeliest conclusion because it requires the least um, amount of mental acrobatics, I guess is, is how I'd put it, to get to that conclusion. It explains everything else. It's just we're alone. And it's depressing, but in the same way, it's also really kind of uplifting because that means we have the entire universe right there for our taking. We're never going to go to war with somebody over some planet that we want to harvest for its material. Um, It's just ours. The more we get to advance technologically and the more we spread out, the more we will be able to take advantage of it and do amazing things with it. That took a deliciously evil turn. It's ours. (laughs) I love that. It's like, we want to go to another planet? It's ours. You have you know, to grip the air like, and make a fist when you say it. Exactly. Like that. It's like the Eddie Izzard thing. It's like, do you have a flag? They don't even need a flag. It's ours. It's ours. <laughs> it's, just ours. it's the way it goes. I like that. I and, and, and you know what? I have to admit, it might not be my thought on it. We'll get to our thoughts in just a second. Um, our ultimate, you know, wrapping thoughts. But I have to admit that Occam's Razor is in the top couple of of the most mm-hmm. pr- most likely here, right? Like, like, uh, uh, taking, well, it's one or the other. I mean, but I mean, yeah. I'm saying I'm saying in the sense that, like, using all of the available evidence that we have, 
of course it makes the most sense because uh, it, going back to the the original query of the paradox, mm. where are they? They should be right here. You know, they should be. Getting into our thoughts about that, it's it's a it's a tough one for me. I I I wrestle with this a lot because I research so much of the extraterrestrial experiences and things like that, and I look at the big picture, and it's hard to say. It is fun to think that we're the only ones there in a way, but it's also crazy because I'm more of your original thinking. It's so vast mm-hmm. that you put a monkey in front of a typewriter long enough, he'll give you Shakespeare. You know, you 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 throw is that enough. True? Well, <laughs> it might it, Shakespeare. It's close. It's okay, exactly right, the same. We haven't found a monkey old enough yet. Uh, we're still working on it. <laughs> I, I saw something, and, and it was actually interesting. It was a, it was a dryer, and the door was open, and all the laundry was folded, and they're like. By the, you know, the rules of everything. Chance. And- Chance. Sometime you should open your, your dryer and this is what's inside there. And I'm like, oh, that's. <laughs> Man, that'd be nice. <laughs> that, but that's the exact same way, though, looking at life. Is it that big of a chance? Well, when you have hundreds of billions and or we're getting into trillions when you get into the whole big thing of other planets and things like that. Could there be life? I like to think so. Here's your out. Yes, it exists. It's just another, another dimension. Well, that's what I was kind of saying, like, and that's so frustrating. Will we ever figure it out? That's the big thing. You know, there's so many experiencers out there in one way or another that have have seen uh, uh, ghosts or aliens or things like that. You can't write all of them off. Now, it doesn't mean what they experience is what they said they experienced, but a lot of them are telling the truth. Now, a lot of that could be government, could be things, it could be all sorts of the gamut. But it's just a fun thing to think for me, the what if, and to keep that open. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. I just like the what if. I agree. I think the what if is definitely always worth examining and pursuing, even if you you don't necessarily agree with it it's still worth thinking about yeah because it's it i don't want to you know well that's that's what science is it's mm-hmm. it's saying what if we did this what if we did that what if we slam these particles together what if we tried to go to the moon what if we tried to send out signals we don't know the answer and that's what's fun about it and that's what's frustrating at the same time and science is meant to examine new evidence as it comes in to make sure that its existing um, ideas still hold up under under you know this new the new evidence that came in no matter what the answer is people a thousand years from now if they're able to access this podcast will be laughing at us i already like, am but, yeah. because they, <laughs> these idiots if there was a podcast going on when they were talking josh on. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a podcast going on when they were talking about heliocentrism mm-hmm. and well, uh, I, looking at the climate today i'm surprised yeah, I, that's I, I not a podcast fl- or, or <laughs> the earth is fl- I mean, how many people were, were were literally killed for believing that the Earth was round and that we weren't the center of the universe? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the, look at the levels that, of understanding, that the, the, the degrees of understanding that we have established. I Here's where I come out on it. I, I don't know the answer to the question. We've talked numerous times before about our beliefs on this show. And I've always said I believe in aliens, but I don't believe that they've been here. Uh, and I think that that goes back to the vastness of space. I think it's hubris. Of, of us as as species to think that if they do exist, we have to be aware. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about think about it this way. We, we talked about grains of sand before. If 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 we are a grain of sand and don't even take take the, the 10,000 for every grain of sand. If if we were a grain of sand on the eastern coast of Australia, 
Okay. And the grain of sand was our world. And we're, we're little microbes that are floating around on that grain of sand. We have a certain line of visibility and we might even have tools that extend that line of visibility. But how far are they, how far are those tools going to extend? Perth? I mean, like, those are some excuses. Say, say Perth. Perth. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, but how far, like, literally, how much could we see? What would we know about a grain of sand on the coast of California? Mm-hmm. Nothing. We would know absolutely nothing. We'd have no way to see it. We'd have no way of understanding what was happening over there, the environment that it was like. And we'd probably, we might not ever run across them. Now, maybe we figure out a way to get picked up by the, the, the wind and get carried over there and, and inter- interact with them at some point. But at the same time, like we are just so infinitesimal in, in, in the universe. I just, I have a hard time wrapping my head around, uh, around it being just completely impossible. Uh, that's, that's kind of, I think I a lot of people have the problem with, you know, we are so small and infinitesimal. People want to feel special. I think that's inherently human. And so, Thinking that we're just in this vast ocean of of crazy is somehow defeating to them. But when you think about what we don't know, think about this. We don't even know if there is a another planet in our solar system. Gravity tells us there probably is that yeah. we, we haven't even seen it yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about Pluto. Hashtag Team Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a, a SETI researcher named Jill Tarter who um, Jodie Foster's character was based on in Contact. Oh, yeah. And she, she said, you know, our searches so far for intelligent life are so small and ins- insignificant. It's kind of like dipping a cup of water into the ocean, coming up with nothing and proclaiming that there's no life in the ocean. <laughs> that's a great point. I mean, that yeah. makes a really great point that, that we are really early on in our searches. For me, the fact that we have not been made aware one way or another, that's that's what really sells it for me. But I think I think you're, you're, what you were saying— it was very well put and beautiful and, and, and very persuasive, too. It, it is just it's possible that we are being kept out of awareness somehow or we just can't be aware at this point because we're still so early in our, our advancement. Mm-hmm. Well, Nation, that's what we think. Why don't you tell us what you think? Yeah, hop on Hysteria Nation. Just go to Facebook, search Hysteria Nation. You can let us know what you think. You can let us know how much you enjoyed Josh on the show or... You can let us know how much you hate Seabot, because that's always fun to do. <laughs> they are smarter than that. <laughs> and don't forget, Facebook.com slash Hysteria51Pod. That is our normal page. Tweet to us at Hysteria51Pod. Also, Instagram, Patreon, Patreon.com slash Hysteria51. Josh, we have an awesome, awesome level I want to tell you about for $30. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if you come <laughs> to one of our meetups which we do a lot you can smell john goforth for nope, 30 it's not true you can't it is and we've had two people <laughs> oh, sign wow. up for it we've had two That's people sign up for it i think that that is it's worth it it's a good use of their money i'd pay I 35 dollars for that <laughs> see see exactly exactly so if you want to smell john goforth or get a t-shirt or some crap like that i mean you can do that on patreon also but uh if you forget any of that except for the sniffing part because that's not true go to hysteria51.com for all the links to everything it's true josh we can't thank you enough for your time today thanks to you guys i really appreciate you guys having me on this is fascinating uh, yeah, so- no, it's actually, it was such a fun, I love, these topics are so fun because there's no wrong, well, 
like you said, in a thousand years looking back. But right now, there's no <laughs> wrong answer, that's and right. that's what's so fun. You can just kind of go, yeah, this is what I think, or this is what this is what helps me sleep at night. I mm-hmm. guess is one way to put it. And Josh, uh, before we go, tell us the deets on uh, on both uh, the end of the world stuff you should know. Where can they find you if they somehow haven't yet? Uh, give us your lowdown. Okay, so on social, we're typically um, SYSK Podcast, and I'm Josh Um Clark, because I say um a lot. And I also have a hashtag going, hashtag EOTW Josh Clark, where um, I talk about stuff that's related to existential risks and end of the world and all that. That's awesome. So it's just a fun one. Just, yeah. <laughs> just right. comedy it's galore, right? You know, it's... It's chuckle fest. The one thing I'll say, if you haven't listened to the end of the world yet, you really need to. No, it is. Yeah, uh, it's, it really. Thank you. Because you you kind of beautifully arrange it, even though you're talking about these fairly negative or, um, well, I mean, yes, it's negative. The end of mankind is negative, but you arrange it kind of like in a way that feels almost uh, positive and uplifting, and and striking that that chord or that balance. Uh, is is amazing and uh, something I'm sure certain I couldn't couldn't have done. So kudos to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate now that. real quick. What would it cost to smell you? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> I don't know. I've never considered that. <laughs> don't. It's okay. You know what? Just ignore him. I bet it's over thirty dollars. <laughs> you cheap. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I think you are giving it away way too cheaply, John. <laughs> Oh, so that's been the the Fermi Paradox. With that said, I've been Brent. I've been Josh. I've been John. He's been Conspiracy Bot. Stay woke, meet sex. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I'll never get over it as long as I live. That's it for another edition of Hysteria 51. John and Brent will be back next week with yet more of the unexplained, the unexplored, and the unheard of. Oh, if it's unheard of, how will they know about it? Anyway, if you want to suggest a topic, give us your thoughts, or just make fun of Conspiracy Bot, that's my favourite. Join us in our Facebook discussion group, Hysteria Nation. Just log on to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation, or you can always tweet us at Hysteria51Pod. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.